Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be always pleasing in your sight. Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. This is the second of the six Sundays in Lent, and we're doing a couple of different things this season. Uh, we've been reading the Living Compass devotional about having a courageous life, and we've been following the brothers of, of the Society of St. John the Evangelist. They have a little chart of practices to help you observe a Holy Lent, and you can find those supplies over there on that table. And each week, we post a video uh, to share on our Resurrection Facebook page put out by the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And what they are looking at is signs of life, they call it. They're answering the question, why go to church? What in the world does church offer anyway? And these symbolisms, the signs we use in church, meet the basic needs that we all have and long for. And the church uses these signs because Jesus said, I am each of these things. This week's sign is water. And I realized how timely it is as I watched the news this week about water selling out of stores like Costco. Um, and in the coronavirus panic, all the instructions about washing our hands so carefully with water. I don't know, you know, there's different songs you can sing as you're washing your hands, and some of them are gospel songs. If you haven't checked it out, check out my Facebook page. It's got some suggestions. You can sing the doxology twice. That'll be enough to make sure that all the germs are off your hands. We need water desperately, especially after we have gotten our hands dirty. Right now, we understand that if we become unclean, we could die. It is about life and death. And it's not that I worry so much about myself with sin. Not that I feel like I have no sin. I know that I do. But when we think about ourselves individually, we do a couple of things psychologically. We overestimate our ability to deal with stuff. Really, when I talk to people, the thing that they are most concerned about are their loved ones. I want to get my hands clean, sure, but it's human to worry about the people that you love. You want to know that they will be safe. You want to know that they will be saved. So the water of baptism is the sign that we in the church use to let people know that they have been made clean. They come to the water's edge to wash off all that contaminates and we wash them outwardly as a sign of an inward reality that they have been born again or born anew, as Jesus tried to explain to Nicodemus. This conversation with Nicodemus lets us peek in on how Jesus is with the soul. And here we have two learned men of Israel. They both studied the scriptures so they can talk in a kind of shorthand. They use the same academic language and they know the same stories. So they don't have to go into all the detail Jesus just refers to it, and Nicodemus would have understood immediately what he was saying. So a story that you need to know, if you haven't read it, is that Jesus refers, um, referred to when he was talking with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus immediately understood. It was the story of the healing serpent in the wilderness. This happens in Numbers 21. During their wilderness journey, the people complained a lot. Do you know that about people, that sometimes they do that? I don't know if you've noticed that. But sometimes they do, and especially when you're asking them to move, just the friction of movement, when you're asking them to enter into something new, when they don't know the way themselves and where they're supposed to be going, they complain. 
The Bible is full of in their wilderness journey, over a dozen times they complain against God. But near the end of the journey, we have this story in Numbers 21, and it is their most serious rebellion. This is the last rebellion story, and it is the most serious. Hungry and impatient, the Israelites ungratefully describe the exodus from Egypt as bringing us out into the wilderness to die. And so God sends poisonous, deadly snakes to, to slither among them wreaking havoc. The people confess, uh-oh, we have sinned, <laughs> and plead for help. And God directs Moses to fashion a serpent of bronze and put it on a pole, such that anyone who has been bitten in Israel can look at it, look on this bronze serpent, and live. The Old Testament shows God, not as punishing, although he does get that rap, the Old Testament God does, but he is a God who warns and he is a God who lets us meet our natural consequences of our choices. He was like, oh, you think you, I brought you out here to die, do you? Well, let's see what happens when you face death. And it's like when you talk to teenagers who, you know, you've sustained their life, their entire lives, and you've given them literally everything that they have. Phones, clothes, TV, books, games, everything they could possibly want, and then suddenly they turn to you and all mad, like you never give them anything, you don't understand anything. It's like that. There were a couple times when my son was a teenager, I thought about, could I just send snakes into his room? <laughs> that would be great. But God sends snakes into their circumstances to make their circumstances real to them. They are completely dependent on God for their very lives. And he's provided manna for them every single day. Do you know how, much, how many meals I cooked during my son's life? I do. No, I don't. <laughs> but it felt like a million and one. He made it so their clothes and their sandals would never wear out. He's provided everything that they need. And now they complain that he's brought them out to die. So he puts them in circumstances to make it clear that they have to look to God for his solutions and help. Look to Moses, the other one that they complained about because he's holding up God's solution for everyone to see. The only ones who don't live are the ones who are so stubborn that they wouldn't look up. They wouldn't look for what God was providing. Nicodemus would have understood that Jesus was saying that he was there from God and that he was God's solution to the sin that kills. He was saying that his mission was to save the people he was saying that he too must be lifted up and people must look to him. Nicodemus didn't know until chapter 19 of John how literally Jesus meant that, though. Now he visits in darkness, but by chapter 19, he will step into the light and be among those who ask for Jesus' body when it's taken down from the cross. Jesus was lifted up. This passage contains the most famous text in the New Testament, John 3.16. And it's kind of fitting, although it's usually football and not baseball, but, but it's kind of fitting that today our second Sunday social is about a sporting event, because that's usually where you see John 3.16 held up, right? Or painted on some guy's belly. I thought about doing that this morning. <laughs> I thought that would be a good follow-up to the Moves Like Jagger sermon, but Mike was like, no, that's, no. I, I gotta, I gotta, I'm gonna have to stop you there, hun. <laughs> so that is the most famous text in the New Testament, John 3:16. Martin Luther called it the gospel in miniature. But I have to tell you, as I grew up, often I would hear that same passage read and preached, 
that somehow changed it from being good news for everyone to somehow being good news for just a few. So I want to take a look at that because if you've ever worried about you or your loved ones getting clean and washing their hands, this is going to be good news for you this morning. There's a couple of things you need to know, though, and one of those things is a language difference that we need to overcome. In 17th century English, so, that word so, frequently meant in this way, as in like so, or as we say, so help me God. And so in the King James Version of the Bible, it made perfect sense to translate the Greek hautos, which means in this way, with the English word so. And that's exactly what the King James translators did in that famous sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. But today, we more often use so as an amplification, right? I'm so sad. I'm so happy. I'm so psyched that we're going to have chili dogs after the service. <laughs> Thus, John 3.16 is often misunderstood today as a statement about the extent or the degree that God loves us. But it is a statement about the way or the pattern in which God provides for our need. It should say, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only son. And for the sake of whose deliverance exactly, the scope of salvation has long been a topic of debate among Christians. And this passage in John is a little case study in that. On the one hand, some emphasize the idea that eternal life is only granted to those who believe as if the sentence were italicized like this. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. On the other hand, some other folks emphasize a different portion of that sentence. They emphasize God's intention to save all people as if the sentence were italicized like this. For God loved the world in this way, he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. There are at least three reasons to lean toward this second set of emphases. First, throughout John's gospel, the world, or in Greek, cosmos, is a term typically used as a shorthand to talk about sin or estrangement from God. Usually when John talks about the world, he means the world of sin out there. And so to use that word here, and to say God so loves the world. It doesn't mean that God hated the world, but that, or just a, and wanted to save just a remnant of those who believed. It meant he saves the whole world. And second, in that story in Numbers, when God provides the remedy of the bronze serpent, the strategy isn't to save the few well-deserved, but rather to save everyone who turned to God. And he didn't even care if they're what their motivations were, right? It wasn't like I looked to God because I suddenly realized he's a great guy. I realize that I'm dying and I need to be saved. Look to him and he will save you. And third, as if to clarify this very question, the very next verse, John 3:17, which is rarely painted on bellies, but is just as important. Jesus underlines his point to emphasize that the son doesn't come to condemn the world, but in order that the, that the world might be saved through him. God loves in this way, graciously, mercifully, faithfully, and yes, universally, the world, the cosmos. 
So for many people, this passage raises questions about the nature and scope of salvation. Does God love the whole world, but intends to only save the few, the remnant who believe in him? And though some Christians try to read it that way, there are three reasons that point the other direction. The emphasis is on unearned deliverance for everyone, like that numbers story. The emphasis on love and not condemnation. And the fundamental ideas in Christian theology that love and humility should govern our reading of scripture. And that we have no rights anyway to impose our limits on God's saving grace and his saving work. Salvation is God's business, not ours. You know, you cannot save yourself. And often I talk to people and they think, I've done something that makes it to where even though I was saved, I was baptized and I believed the things at one time, but now I've messed up again. And um, I think I've undone it all. You're not that strong. You're not that powerful. If God's hand has taken you, Do you really think you're strong enough to take yourself out of it? You are not. Once saved, always saved. Love and humility govern our reading of Scripture because those are what we learn from God and about God. Without exception, he saves all the families of the earth, it says in our Genesis reading. Nicodemus is an example of what happens if you lay down what you think you know and have a real conversation with Jesus. Lent is often a time where we take up praying as one of the practices that lead us closer to God. And if you do that and you have a private conversation with the Lord, he might just tell you some things that might surprise you, like his plan for saving the world. That's what he told Nicodemus. He will give you assurance that his intent is to heal and to save us and all whom we love. Like the water of baptism, he will make us clean and new no matter what we've done or left undone or what has happened to us. Come to the water's edge and wash your hands. Look to Jesus and be saved. Let us pray. O God, whose glory it is always to have mercy, be gracious to all who have gone astray from your ways and bring them again with penitent hearts and steadfast faith to embrace and hold fast the unchangeable truth of your word, Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who with you and the Holy Spirit lives and reigns, one God, forever and ever. Amen.